My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And my name is Meg. And, and this, this is, is Animorphology. Animorphology. Everworld Edition. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The end. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The warning, The Decision. The Spread. The Departure. The Sabbath. Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Weakness. The Conspiracy. The Resolution. The Deception. The Suspicion. The Resistance. The Extreme Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. Gateway to the Gods. You guys, I actually kind of liked this one. Gray is making a face. So she probably won't. No, you kind of liked it because the bar has been lowered so far by the no, previous it's so six true. books in the series. <laughs> I was I was reading this book. I was like, this makes me realize the things that I could like about Everworld if it were done better. Like I see mm-hmm. now the potential good parts. I feel like both April books have given me that more than any other book. Yeah. But I was reading this like yesterday, and Ted hadn't read it yet, and I was. I was like, I think this might be one of the better books. And he was like, not the best book. I was like, it's probably the best book, but saying that feels like giving it too much credit. Like it just, it's not good enough to be the best book, but it's also probably the best book. <laughs> Ted, what did you think after you read it? Um, I mean, I, I basically agree with everything that Jenny said. I feel like this was, yeah, again, April book. It was, it was good. April's a good protagonist. I feel like, this should have been book four instead of book seven in terms of the pacing. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that a lot of the stuff that we were complaining about in book two of like, yeah, we get it. These kids suck. Let's <laughs> let's let, let's see them growing and changing. Like, I guess they are starting to pay that off. So I'm really curious to see what happens in like the second the second half of the series now. Like David and Christopher especially feel like they are growing and changing as characters in a way they were very static for the first half of the series. So, I don't know. I also, like, just got a kick out of the Greek gods making cameos and stuff, which is, like, very, again, low-hanging fruit for a series about mythology, Uh because this is the most well-known and beloved pantheon or whatever, and, like, you have so many fun characters to play with. But I'm like, Artemis checking out Aphrodite, I'm like, LOL, this is great. (laughs) Greek gods, let's go. This was also the book that gave us the most potential long-term plot stuff. Like it, it stu- it, like now we're in the middle of this active war that's going to continue over multiple books. And we got like Cassandra's prophecy that like gives us a hint towards where the series is going, which was also a really funny scene. So I actually hated that. Oh. I, I also <laughs> hated that bit. And they're like, we shouldn't believe her, right? Right. <laughs> what did she say? I can't remember. <laughs> but like um, that but her prophecy does give us like a oh something there's something to maybe reach for here like mm-hmm. something we're heading mm-hmm. towards we finally have these pieces that it seemed like we were going to get in the last april book so i hope it, the pattern doesn't repeat uh but finally in book seven maybe we're getting a point some long term exactly we're getting a point meg what did you think uh I read it when I was hungry, so all I could think about was the feast, like, all the way through. Oh, yeah. It was like the Redwall issue all over again. <laughs> uh, this one was more fun. I mean, I do enjoy being in April's head more than anyone else's. Uh, and I was singing the the Percy Jackson musical in my head, like, the whole time we were going through. The gods are real, like the Greek gods. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, imp- vast improvement. God, our bar right? is so low. Uh, Athena's, <laughs> Athena's my favorite, so that yes. was nice. No, I mean, unsurprisingly, I really love, like, Greek mythology is my thing. I really enjoyed this version of the various gods, at least a lot of it. And I like some of the, like, Ooh, I'm excited. nods to source material. Like, there was a reference to one of the DK Eyewitness mythology books. And I was like, I checked that book out from the library so many times. Yes. Um, so that was that was fun. And, uh, yeah, then, then there was all the other stuff. It does seem like now there's a point to some extent, like a larger plot that this series might have. We'll point out we're on book seven of 12, so yeah. maybe they could have gotten to that a little sooner because now you have five books to wrap up two relatively major plot arcs that like I would have loved to have five books ago. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers, apparently. <laughs> there's a there's a bit where David's like, at least he doesn't eat human hearts. And Jaleel's like, yeah, I guess you have to set the bar kind of low in judging <laughs> gods, huh? And I'm like, that's this book. Meta commentary on the books. That's this book. That's what this is. Yeah, I don't know. I There's a lot, still a lot of racism in sexism in this book that they're like, see, we're, we recognize that it's racist and sexist. And it's like, okay. Then don't... <laughs> You do could not it. do it. And that would also be an, a choice. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess doing it and then saying, but we know that's racist, is better than not recognizing that it's racist? It's hard for me to tell. <laughs> we should definitely get into that. But I would love to hear what happened in this book, Greg. Well, let me tell you about what happened in this book. Uh, this book had actual things that happened, unlike the last couple, which that was kind of fun. Um, it starts with where, where the last book left off, which is our team is now on Olympus. They're being treated like gods. You know, they get baths, clean clothes, <laughs> more food and drink than they can stuff in their faces. And to Meg's point, the food does sound amazing. I would like to eat it all. I'm very hungry. I want those poppy seed cakes with the cream. <laughs> Ooh, mm-hmm, yeah. Yes, please. Um, Cassandra uh, of the Trojan War appears, even though she was not a god, does not belong on Olympus, but who cares, and tells them... <laughs> The following. Galahad was there, so... She's a myth. She's in the myth house. I mean, I mythos. Myth house? The mythos. <laughs> I think we've already got a title. In the myth house. I mean, I figured you just meant that I thought that was like the myth house. Yeah. I did, yeah. and then I was like, no, no, there's a real word for what you're trying to say. Welcome oh my god, to I love the myth house. <laughs> All right, uh, Cassandra tells them, Olympus by the Hetwan hordes besieged, Hellas's gods Ka'anor shall feed, lest strangers bring the witch to heed the alien blacksmith's secret need. Yeah. Uh, they don't believe her and immediately forget she said anything. Fine. April fills us in on the Everworld real-world dichotomy and subtly reminds us that all these kids are going to need significant therapy. But are they going to get it? <laughs> Probably no. not. Mm-hmm. Not in this series, at least. Uh, the team's called to appear before Zeus, and they meet some of the other gods as well, which is kind of fun. And then all of the gods, Greek gods, get into some very silly arguments, which checks out. David mm. points out they're going to lose to the Hetwans very badly. Uh, they're outnumbered and not good at fighting. And so he tells Athena to put him, he means them, in charge of the war. Uh, this is dumb, obviously. 
Athena mm-hmm. instructs Pegasus and his sons, you know, the flying horses, to show our four idiots the war situation. And it's pretty dire, in part because the Greeks are still fighting with the weapons of 2,000 years ago, and also because just the mortals are fighting and not the gods, and they don't know why. So the teens decide to join into a battle for uh, reasons and manage to defeat the first wave of Hetwans and prevent a second wave from happening. April joins in to the battle, gets some very cool battle rage, and then accidentally falls partially down a cliff, uh, whereupon she's rescued by Athena, but not before seeing that the Ku Hatch are with the Hetwans and they have a gun. Uh Uh-oh. Then there's an interlude in the real world where April meditates on the nature of friendships. I don't know why, but we'll talk about it, I'm sure. Back in Everworld, Ka'anor has sent an ambassador with a promise of a truce to the Greek gods. Zeus can remain on Olympus with five of his gods. The others will be killed, but the Hetwans will leave. They're considering this because Zeus is an idiot. Uh, but then Senna reveals herself as one of the Hetwans. She was like, in disguise, and confirms that, yep, it's a trick, don't do it. Then she makes a deal where she'll be allowed to stay on Olympus if she releases David from her spell, which she does. And she also bargains to get protection from Merlin, who's tracking her. They all try to figure out what to do next, because who knows. And then Senna reveals part of her plan. The most powerful person in Everworld, according to Senna, is Merlin, because he is a human and therefore like flexible and creative and able to make things change. Unlike the gods, who are set in their ways and personalities, humans can be elements of change and chaos, which is apparently why she brought the four of them to Everworld. They are her pawns, they're her elements of surprise in this battle. I guess? Maybe? Someone will probably tell me if I'm wrong. Um, As the (laughs) teens are digesting that information, they receive word that the Hetwans are about to attack again. This time, David is ready. He has a several-part plan, including a catapult created by Hephaestus, and a cauldron of embers that April, Jaleel, and Christopher will use to firebomb the Hetwan as David attacks them from the rear. Senna has orders to bring a coup hatch back to talk to David so he can figure out what's happening, but instead she kills one of them in the middle of the battle. Big battle happens, they all almost die, but then they don't, Uh, and sort of, I guess, probably they win? It's a little unclear. Then at the end, Athena confronts them all, and it turns out that the Kuhatch want to get back to their home planet and are trying to get any of the gods to send them back, please any of the gods. Um, the teens suggest that Senna might be able to do this and she can create gateways between the worlds. Senna reveals she can't, but she knows someone who maybe can, her mother. Dun dun dun! And that's how the book ends. <laughs> yes, Meg? <laughs> Meg's making a face. I think I made a prediction about Zeno's mom at some point. Actually, you totally my, yeah. did. I think my prediction was that like neither of April's parents were her parents. That it was a, a whammy to let her be like a cuckoo bird mm-hmm. in the nest. But then you guys are like, no, no, they have the same dad. And I'm like, mm-hmm. do I? Uh, no, you totally called that Zeno's mom was going to be a thing. Well done. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I got some of that wrong, but like that's probably mostly what happened, right? Yeah. No, this seems pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So where do we want to start? start? (laughs) Uh, I think everyone was right last week when we said, oh my gosh, Olympus is going to be the most civilized of all the pantheons that we interact Mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. And the most in-depth view at the different gods. We got gods who aren't gods of war. Yeah. And we got goddesses. I mean, the most goddess we got was Athena, who is a goddess of war. But still, she's a really cool goddess of war. she's very cool. And And we also got some other goddesses. And wisdom, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so we got to see, like, the entire pantheon and not just the one god who's trying to kill them. Yeah. Pretty cool. I guess there's an interesting thing. So the the Greek gods, the first part of the book is, like, so civilized, so impressive. Um, the gods are really important and powerful. And the kids pretty quickly realize that they all have the, like, temperament of toddlers, more yeah. or less. Like, the gods are very proud and they fight about nothing and it's all petty and Jaleel I think later on makes an analogy that I thought was really astute that the gods are like used to being political and like playing these games with each other but because they're immortal they've never had to worry about like survival Mm -hmm. so they just kind of like like why would they be able to um, cut through all the BS and think about what it would take to be con or like they're just not kind of equipped to do that. Um, and so it's it's interesting because I feel like if you, on the one hand, we have wanted more depth and less cartoonishness mm-hmm. from gods we are less familiar with. But here, Apple Grant like jumps on the opportunity to be like, here are all these gods with complex motives, but let's show how they're like babies by comparison with our teen protagonists. Our teens, yeah. It's a really interesting choice in a series about a bunch of different gods to have the gods be fundamentally not characters, right? Like, every god we've met, and it's, like, very much lampshade in this book, like, it's, this is intentional, is sort of a caricature because they don't have the ability to change and grow and be, you know, the complex, in like, like surviving machines with ingenuity that humans are. Mm-hmm. And, like, the, these books are deliberately being, like, humans are weaker than gods, but also better because they're adaptable and, like, you know, it's a little bit what we saw in Animorphs where, like, these kids could do so much cool stuff because they're, like, agile and um, resourceful and, like, this is a larger statement about humanity that Apple Grant is making in Mm -hmm. these books that, like, they are better than these sort of rigid immortals. Yeah. But, like, that also is maybe explains a little bit why we've been frustrated with the use of the immortals in these books because, Mm -hmm. like, bring all the gods into this one world where they have to interact. Like, you could do all sorts of cool, like, ways in which they conflict or ally or like each other or hate each other or change each other. And, like, this book is kind of being like, no, 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 we were never going to do any of that. We never want to imply that a god can change. They're just sort of these fixed Mm -hmm. forces and never going to be, like, robust Mm -hmm. characters. Yeah, and it's also, I think think that there's some interesting theology going on. I say interesting. Interesting is not the right word. There's possibly <laughs> some consideration of theology happening. There's a there's a couple mm. times when April kind of confronts her own beliefs. And by confronts, I mean, you know, recognizes that there are these differences between her method of belief and Jaleel's, for example. You know, she is a, has a strong Catholic belief. One of the flashbacks to, or not flashbacks, but the, like, cuts to the real world is her waiting for, to, to go into confession. But there's, there's sort of a subtext of her belief in a god whom she has, of course, never seen or interacted with versus these, like, immortal beings called, also called gods, who have powers have interacted with her and there's a there's a point in the final battle when she thinks she's about to die and she calls out to god and then she calls out to athena and she thinks it's athena that saved her which checks out 
like very unclear whether <laughs> the Christian God exists in Everworld. Um, whereas Athena does and has rescued her in the past. So like makes sense that it would be her. But I think it's kind of a like a both weird and fun view of pretty basic theology of the first question of like, is my God different from these other gods? Um, right. It was really fascinating. Like, so I feel like modern Christianity, which is of course not a monolith, but a lot of the ways that we like modern Christianity in its many branches uh, treats, you know, God is like the one absolutely all powerful power. Like if other like quote unquote gods exist, you know, maybe they're like angels, they're other subsidiary powers, but like, it's not like there's any rival to him really. Like, you know, maybe Satan's opposed, but it's not like you're picking sports teams, which like, in, <laughs> but like in the Old Testament, like the context in which a lot of this, like, you know, you shall have no other God but me. The context in which that was said was like, basically, yes, picking sports teams. Like, um, I think this God's going to win. So I'm going to make a sacrifice to this one. Uh, I think this, oh no, this God has my favor. I better keep, keep in good with that God or he might curse me. You know, it was this sort of idea of like many, many different players. So like, in a modern Christian view, like April praying to Athena instead of like mm-hmm. Athena is actually real and can maybe hear her like, you know, these things for sure. It feels like a very different category than like all powerful, all seeing, all knowing God who may or may not intercede. His ways are mysterious. You know, um, it's sort of not necessarily someone who's going to help you in this immediate crisis, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in an sort of an older Testament context, it's actually like a direct betrayal to the Christian God to pray to Athena like that. It's, it depends like what lens you're seeing it through. And so my, my initial reaction was like, okay, well, April, you shouldn't worry about that. I mean, that's not really a betrayal of like, you know, obviously that Athena is way less powerful than like the Christian God. You don't have to worry about that. But like that maybe is not the only lens you can view it through. That's really interesting. Yeah, because that's not... I like that view of it. And what I... My impression or sort of my thought pattern on that had been... The thing she says about Jaleel is that he scares her. There's there's this entire paragraph that's just, hello, let me introduce you to the concept of microaggressions. But one of the things she says is, he scares me a little. I would never admit it to him. But he lives life without faith, without any recourse to any power other than his own. How can a person live in a world without any hope of God? It's like finding out that someone lives without ever eating. It fascinates me. It worries me. It makes me doubt myself. There's a lot of other character things going on there. But in terms of her she's going in the opposite direction, right? Like Jaleel faced with all of these gods is like, that just means that all gods are whatever. They're clearly not helping me at all. I'm going to really focus hard on my kind of scientific approach to the world and like try and find an explanation. Whereas April, who has this faith in kind of a one all-knowing, compassionate God, when faced with all these other gods, is more, is kind of more likely to trust the gods in some ways. Like, 
she, you know, if they're also benevolent overlords, then her her problem is not leaning harder into one single god, but rather, oh my gosh, there are so many of them. What does that mean <laughs> for my belief in this one god? Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's like what you were saying, Jenny, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting like dichotomy that she was trying to draw between Jaleel. One of the things that frustrated me about this book is that there are all these really interesting like theological bits that are, I think, really interesting, like philosophically fascinating. And then they're given three lines and we move on and never think about it again. It happens at least twice. And I was like, but that's actually really interesting. Can we spend a minute on that concept before we ignore it for the rest of the book? And like maybe that that wouldn't work for the pacing of this, and I totally get that. But like it's interesting. I don't know. I actually wonder. I believe. I think based on stuff that they've said, and just kind of from the general tone of of these everything I've read from them, Applegran are atheists and probably have been for most of their lives. I guess I wouldn't be surprised if maybe one of them grew up Catholic or something. But I feel like April is not a very her her doubts and stuff are very interesting, but I think they feel surfacey because the authors aren't actually that interested in like hmm. what it means to have faith in the way that it, like April feels like a little bit like a like a, a straw woman of like someone who believes in a Christian God because I'm not. It seems equally plausible to me that April could respond exactly the way Jaleel does to Everworld and just say like, oh yeah, well. This obviously doesn't change my faith. Like, just because I'm in this crazy world where the rules don't apply, like, my rules and my faith are grounded in the world that I came from, and this is a different thing. Hmm. Um, It's just as likely that she's like, oh, yeah, well, all that God meant to me was, like, the the thing that I could selfishly pray to, and now I have a better God, so I'm switching teams, right? Like, which is not what she's doing, right? But, like, that conflict between her faith and Athena, I do feel like... I don't know. I, I buy the, like, oh, I felt bitter about it. I feel like I betrayed my God or whatever. But, like, it does feel very surfacy to me. Yeah. Um, Actually, yeah, maybe it's the inverse of what I said. Because um, if you are standing from outside the Christian faith, you could be like, oh, yeah, another God, like, who, like, stands at the same level of Athena. And so you could betray that God for Athena. And, like, within the Christian faith, I think, it, it like, it is more like, well, Athena's no threat to God. Like... There's, so maybe it is there. Um, maybe April's conflict of faith, quote unquote, is like them not grasping the magnitude that she would give to the Christian God in her. Yeah. Faith. Well, you're right. It's the question is whether does April have like I think the thing that seems weak about it is that April seems to be portrayed as like. Her deep faith is one of her main characteristics. Mm-hmm. However, the way she actually thinks about theology is like pretty shallow. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason I think that this is interesting, but also the reason I want more is that, as you know, I was raised very religious. And so I am imagining myself as a teenager being kind of an April character, right? Incredibly mm-hmm. involved in church. Like that's the very much the center of kind of who she is in, in a lot of ways, that and drama club, which again, checks out for me. And <laughs> me being put in a situation where it's like, hey, all those things you believed, it turns out this other shit is also true. I would have lost my tiny mind. Like I truly would have been unable to 
even wrap my mind around the fact that these stories could be true. What does that mean for my deeply held beliefs? Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that it's just that's not what they're trying to do here. That's not what they care about. So it's not Mm -hmm. really dealt with in any... If anything, she's underreacting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, no, you should be freaking the fuck out right now. Other gods are real and one of them just gave you a flying horse and maybe saved your life. Like, you're going to want (laughs) to reconsider some shit. Meg, do you have any thoughts on this? I feel like we've been Um, talking a lot. Yeah, so it's very funny. So me as a teen, I was always a writer, um, but like Gray, I was raised uh, with a very religious like family and stuff. So I would always write alternate realities. I don't. I wouldn't write. um, What am I trying to say? Urban fantasy. I'd always write like high fantasy in a completely different world where like my religion and my God didn't exist, so I could kind of do what I wanted. That broke the rules and stuff because it would be weird to write stuff in my world with my religion being like a real influence and stuff. And um, I think me as a teenager would have been very much an April character. Well, maybe more of like a uh, a David character with April's conflicts where like, oh my gosh, Everworld's so real and it's so cool and it's so amazing. But maybe I would be able to completely separate it. We're like, yeah, in my world that Christian God is still the one and just Everworld is just a different world, a different reality kind of outside Mm -hmm. that realm. And I think maybe it'd be interesting to have a character who worked very hard to compartmentalize things. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you believe that the Christian God is God overall, then yes, they would also have power in Everworld. So interesting thought. Total tangential, uh, April feels things when she looks at Aphrodite. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it'll be like 10 years before she acknowledges it though mm-hmm. yeah, it's true. <laughs> so beautiful she moved even women even me mm, that's not how it works april <laughs> <laughs> i mean it is but it means something different from what you think it means yeah <laughs> exactly and i love yeah i i liked the friendship stuff gray you were um it seemed like in the summary, maybe you were a little frustrated with that pacing wise. Um, I, I really liked the glimpses of April's real world life where she's Mm. like worried about losing these close high school friendships. Like she feels like she says at one point that her friends are the center of her life. And she's the only one of the characters that we've seen have a real world like thing that they care about. And I think that is a big part of why I relate to her as a protagonist I mean aside from the fact that most of the other characters suck but like she she has this these strong attachments that like let you see some of what I love so much about Animorphs this like conflict between like I am trying to live my normal life but oh my gosh every once in a while I get this like info dump of like these terrible things that are happening to me in this other reality and she starts to deal with the thing that we see the Animorphs start to deal with like a you know 20-ish books in where they are starting to grapple with the the fact that their lives are less their normal lives are less exciting than these other lives they have and these other lives are terrible but they're also like huge and dramatic and fantastic and like full of like color and action and it makes their normal lives look small and you know David felt that right from the start he was like oh Everworld I'm all about this and Mm -hmm. April is really fighting against that, but she's starting to feel it. And I was reading this book and being like, if Everworld, like the place, were 
a more enjoyable place for me to live in, in my imagination, I would adore this book series because of that conflict. And like, and by Mm. a place that I would like to live in, I don't mean like actually a pleasant place. I mean the way that like you read a fantasy series and you're like, wow, if I were actually there, I'd be miserable. But like you want to live there in your imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think that what they could have done in order to make Everworld that kind of place is have the characters be friends with each other because then we'll like them because they like each other and also give us a little bit more consistency because they don't let themselves build anything mm-hmm. from book or to book. Or even to have nice places in Everworld. Like, you know, if you want to live in Lord of the Rings, you you have safe places you would want to hang yeah. out. You'd want to be in Hobbiton. You'd want to be in Rivendell. You'd want to be in Lothlorien. Um Everworld has gotten a little bit of that finally this episode, but we've spent six books being tired and being dirty and being uh-huh. chased all over um, that I think if we'd had a couple other kind or safe places earlier in the series that there would be kind of more weight to the consideration of do we want to like maybe we Everworld is better than the real world. Mm. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point. Meg, and I was hoping you would talk about this. The thing that struck me about this is, like, I've really hated the character dynamics between the people. And then we get in this book, they're finally able to rest and have a good meal. And then they're, like, nice to each other and joking around. And, like, they don't, they're not instantly friends, but it's like, okay, yeah, so it is, I guess psychologically realistic (laughs) that if you were thrown into like weeks and weeks of near-death experiences of course you would be your worst self all the time i'm not sure that's a great reason to to narratively (laughs) drag us through six books of shit until they finally catch a break and like you know they get to turn the other cheek a little bit you know like i still i think we can still talk about some of the things that are bad but like David and Christopher, at least, are, like, able to... Discuss. Be, they're, they're able to, like, show enough that I think, I think you're willing to see, like, okay, maybe these people could become friends or, like, learn to work together, at least. The other thing... I, I see the skepticism. We should, <laughs> we should talk about it. Uh, the other thing is that also it goes to show that, like... I guess tying it back to kind of like the gods are unchanging and the kids can change thing. Again, so it's like, okay, it's you can have the gods be childish, you can have them be not interesting characters, but you still don't have to pick the gods of like war mm. and evil to set this miserable tone through all of the books, right? Because like Fairyland was like actually the most interesting location because... Mm-hmm it was not defined around a god. It was like, there were a set of different competing characters and it was like economics, et cetera, et cetera. Like everything else has been kind of like grim and dour and Olympus was more interesting because you have like the whole pantheon or whatever. But like you easily could have had, you know, I don't know, like you could have had instead of the trip to hell, you could have had like a Demeter Persephone psychodrama or something Mm -hmm. as your underworld story. Or you could have, like, a Poseidon uh, ocean adventure or any other kind of, like, god. Sure. Like you, they don't have to pick the gods they're picking. But then there would have been no space for the road made out of skulls. <laughs> you know That's they would have That was a there. pretty cool chapter. You're right, Meg. <laughs> I mean, I do think that one of the reasons that they have been doing this is that, like, they haven't had any tension of we're going somewhere. 
And so they felt like they needed to create the tension of constant misery, constant danger. And I don't think that works narratively, but I do think that's a reason that they felt like they had to turn to that. Kind of jumping back to my point earlier ago, time to draw a direct connection between this series and Animorphs again. The fighting Uh in Animorphs is horrible, but being able to turn into animals is usually great. Like being able to fly like a hawk or have the senses of the cat. I mean, there are some morphs that are just terrible. We don't speak of those. Um, (laughs) But if the war wasn't going on, being an animorph would be incredible. Um, And I think this, maybe this series could have benefited more from that where like Everworld is wonderful until the gods start fighting. That maybe just being in the Aztec camp wasn't horrible until the attack happened or something. Mm. That like, or maybe like even Ka'anor's presence is what is trampling it. Because we've we've mentioned many times before how our kids have no connection to any of the people living in Everworld. Like the humans, we could care less. But maybe if we like cared about Everworld itself, it'd be easier to have had that plot to be like, we have to save Everworld. Because they've brought that up a couple times where, like, we have to change Everworld or we have to save Everworld. And I'm like, you don't like it here. No. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I wish I was an Animorph. We have to keep Everworld from invading our world, but that's the only stake that, like, I feel like I care about. Mm -hmm. Everworld itself, like, we just don't, we don't care. We don't want it to continue in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that it's not fun, but I think the other part is that it's not interesting. Right? Mm. I mean, you know, even when the Animorph stuff was horrible, and I am the first to point out when it is, it's still interesting. Like, you might, Mm -hmm. it might be a a dreadful experience, but these characters are learning about themselves and each other, they're learning about animals, they're figuring out a puzzle. And Mm -hmm. we just, I think we're missing those pieces in the Everworld books where they're not really learning anything and we are starting to see, you know, to what Ted said earlier, like, we are starting to see some character growth, I guess. Um, <laughs> but even that, one of the things I wanted to bring up was when, um, at the beginning of the book, April has this bit where she describes each of the other characters, David, Christopher, and Julio. Those are some really interesting couple of pages. They were so interesting and also really weirdly inaccurate, given that we've been together <laughs> with these characters for seven books. Go like, on. For example, okay, so David, she calls him, She's she says he's handsome. Uh, she describes him as a dark Dylan D- McDermott, which I think is very funny and very 90s. I had um, to Google that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Insecure has to prove himself as a manly man, right? She's very, like, leaning into the toxic masculinity. And then she says, when things get bad, we turn to David. Do you? Would we say that? Because I haven't really seen that, right? Like, he's not... She's gay. so generous. Why isn't her first thought... I always have good ideas, and David has bad ideas, and he ignores me or steals my ideas. Because that is what we have observed. And that's what happens in this book, right? She points out, yeah, yeah, she points out a geographical aspect of the landscape in which they're fighting that David didn't notice. He reacts very poorly at first. The other boys tease that him for letting a chick out Napoleon him. I hate everything about that passage. (laughs) And then David like has a second and goes, okay, actually. 
that's a really good point, April. She's better mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. something like landscapes or like ge- right. She's better. She has an eye for terrain. She has one specific, and she's grateful that he told her. Yes, that. and she's like <laughs> oh, ridiculous. That was so kind of you to point that out and to take me seriously. Thank you. And then at the end, he's like, and I had this great idea. We're going to use that thing April pointed out to do that. And everyone's like, oh, David, you're so smart. And I just got very annoyed by that. Okay, so like, that's <laughs> not a really good description of David, yeah. right? Mm-mm. I mean, I think I, I completely agree with everything you guys just said. I do think that like the way that they sometimes hand him the sword and want him to do the physical heroics because he's the one who's like into that, that might be a thing that she that has like stuck in her mind. Um, because like most humans, she is probably scared when there is physical danger and likes being able to put David in front of her. Yeah. And she has a good, I, I liked the part where she was like, I, I am actually, I do not want to fight, but I also don't want to be like playing the gender card to get out of it. Even if David is letting me and like that, that I think is a more interesting conflict or like thing for her to grapple with than like this really undeserved, like, I know David's a nice guy deep down. Like... Maybe she is that nice of a person, but, like, come on. <laughs> He's been pretty terrible. All right, I do want to get back to the character descriptions, but, like, that thing where he's like, April, you don't have to fight. This isn't a debate class discussion about whether women can fight. This is real battle. Therefore, you know, everything, I don't know, everything we've said in debate class is fake. Like, you know, all the lip service to women being equal is just that, and when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter, seems to be the implication. And, I mean, she does, like call him on it and be like no I want to fight like no screw you I want to fight um and like and I I also enjoyed the exploration of like she having grown up in this culture has this like conflicting like okay first of all I don't want to fight because no one wants to fight but I don't want to not want to fight because I don't want to be like a traitor to my gender and like yeah she feels like she like there is an out but it would be like wrong to take it like you know she has very complex feelings about which felt very true David was just being a total ass with being, like... Yeah. It was also... It was also that April conflict was a little more prominent in her first book when she's, like, standing against the trolls at the very end. Mm -hmm. And, like, I thought they were... I guess they had the Battle Rage stuff came up again in this book. But Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, we should talk about that later, but... So, going back to the April's character reflection stuff, the, um... Okay, so, like, David being charitable, more charitable towards April, is a sign of character growth for David compared to <laughs> how he has acted in previous books. Unfortunately, David yes. being willing to acknowledge a more nuanced relationship with Santa is progress. Christopher multiple times uh, makes absolutely awful jokes and then feels embarrassed <laughs> about it, which is in contrast to what he has done previously. But here is April's, like take on Christopher that his racism comes from his like baggage or whatever. And then she says, racism isn't exactly a symptom of happiness and mental balance. Is it? Which I think is the most indicative sentence and maybe like the most 90 sentence in this entire series so far, because it's like, it totally recontextualizes all of this like stuff and like all of the, isms that Christopher has are like in the context of high school where like really being racist is just about like white kids bullying black kids it's not like a thing that's going to affect their whole lives or like it's not a question of equity etc 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 and so like of course April isn't saying seeing like David's 
stuff in the context of like gendered microaggressions she's just like he has a difficult personality and i'm gonna be nice to him because when everyone grows up and aren't kids anymore none of these things matter and like it's so facile and like it's so obvious in retrospect but it's like this is what this is what apple grant is working with have y'all watched fleabag yes um so the the sister's husband martin tells horrifically sexually inappropriate jokes constantly through the through the whole show and in the finale they finally have like a confrontation about it where sorry spoilers for fleabag the sister is considering leaving the husband and he finally is like it's not my fault i have a bad personality some people are just born with personalities but we I reference make, that all the yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> but I make you It laugh. is true of David and Christopher. Although, uh, if you recall, back yonder when we're reading Christopher's first book, I went on this whole bit about how I wish he would just think over something he'd say just one time. That would be enough character growth <laughs> for me. It happened in this book where he yeah. uh, was like, David, you're the first. And he pauses american greek hero and i'm like he did it he did it the bar was so low and he stepped right over it (laughs) you did it christopher um and then they finally had a conversation about acceptable boundaries betwixt david christopher and jaleel i mean it was still heavily covered in jokingness and stuff but i'm like this is what i wanted and it happened (laughs) too little too late so on the one hand yeah there yeah there's like They're definitely, like, this is what they were always planning for Christopher, I'm sure, for him to be just a complete asshole and to start to recognize, like, it's a little unclear why he's recognizing it. Like, he feels bad that Ganymede died, so now he's like, oh, I guess I shouldn't hurt people with my humor. I don't know. I think it's the Nazi thing, too. I mean, oh, yeah, April yeah, doesn't yeah. know about that. Yeah. But, but like... The, the perspective that April brings to it feels like the perspective that the authors are bringing to it, where they're like... Okay, he's he's actually charming and funny. I don't know why she thinks that. He's never shown that. He must have like a ton of charisma in person because none of it comes across in the text. Uh, but like he he's like he's racist. He's sexist. All he's bigoted in all these ways. And it's because like it must be because he's like psychologically hurt. And like I'm sure he can get better somehow. And I'm not sure that's inaccurate. Like the thing that she says about like racism doesn't come from like like racism is like a messed up thing it's not a sign of like healthy human psychology but that's a weird stance to take on a racist like there's no focus on the harm that he does with his comments and that it feels like the kind of thing that we are desperately and unevenly and with mixed success trying as a society to get past where we focus on the feelings of the racists, the like, and instead look at the harm that they're doing and prioritize minimizing that harm instead of not hurting their feelings or like soothing them or like fixing them or coddling them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I say them, I mean like us, I mean white people, I mean everyone who's grown up in the society of racism. Um, and so this, like, while it's hard to take any one thing and be like, that's not realistic or that shouldn't happen, it's it is a perspective on racism that feels overly concerned with the psychology of the racist. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And I mean, she the way that she describes him is 90% of the time he's easy to like, the other 10% he's a sexist, racist, true? homophobic <laughs> jerk. First of all, that is wildly inaccurate. You gotta what we've seen your statistics. It's more of like... Definitely yeah. not yeah. that. But also, like, even if it were that, which it's not, that's not good. Like, the, the I don't know. I, I do see the, the growth and that they really are highlighting that, right? Like, he blushes now when he makes a racist joke and, like, he does stop himself from calling David the first Jewish general or whatever. But it's like... That's it. That's not enough, especially like the the time when he blushes because he realizes that what he said was real racist is David gives an order to some underling on Olympus. Jaleel says to him, oh, you were made for making orders. And Christopher replies, oh, my God, kind of makes you want to start calling him Massa Dave, M-A-S-S-A. And then he blushes and they're like, look growth he blushed and i was like no 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 that was such a horrific comment the amount of racism in that in that section was awful and then like not long after that he starts to make another joke he stops himself and then he says political correctness isn't funny and i was like let me tell you about the huge gap between politically correct and what you are doing because like what i i was i i just the thing about these books that i keep coming back to is i understand that they are trying to show that these aspects of christopher are not good but i do think that there's probably a better way to do that than by being a really racist book with the occasional line of maybe don't do that right like yeah it's it's so racist. And it's it's a failure, I think, in at least two ways. One is that the, like, pacing is, like, totally off in terms of, like, appropriateness. Because it's like, okay, so you have to read over the course of, like, a year se- seven of these books to learn the lesson that Christopher's behavior in books one through six is authorially inappropriate. Right? Like, <laughs> like it's just sort of like, yeah. it's sort of like, if, if this was, like, maybe book two in terms of pacing of, like, Christopher's basically as awful as they can make him. He starts to learn. He he falls back. You know, like, you could kind of see, like, maybe there's an arc here where the books are often about the boundaries of, you know, humor or, or whatever, right? But, like, to your point, that is not what is happening here. Like, the examples that they are using, like, Applegreen is like, oh, yeah, because Christopher's blushing now, we have license to be as racist as we think is funny, which is, like, yeah. probably they do think it's funny, which is yes. just, like, an indictment of, of them, right? Like, so, and, like, maybe it's just we've come so far since the 90s, and, like, I would have thought that was funny at the time, but I don't think so. I think this is them, like, going for, like, shock shock value humor and thinking that that's genuinely funny or something like that. Yeah, I think that they have a huge blind spot, and that's what's making some of it ring really false to me. Hmm. They have a huge blind spot about how funny the quote-unquote not politically correct jokes are, because he said politically correct isn't funny, and I was like, wait, do you think any of the comments you've been making have been funny? And then I was like, wait, no. The authors do think that because they keep saying how funny he is, and then he never says anything actually funny. He just says things that are offensive. And I was like, oh, my God, they actually think that this like 
offensive humor is funny. God, that's such a good point. And that he's sacrificing his humor <laughs> in order to be politically correct. That's which, like, so isn't true even and worse. accurate. Like, did they think that? And, like, the fact that they're, like, conveying that to their readership. Like, they're trying to be like, oh, but he shouldn't do this. But they're also reinforcing the idea that it's funny. Yeah. And I think it's because they're trying... This is, and I don't know how well-grounded this is, I think that in them trying to do, like, real YA instead of middle grade, I think that they're trying to say, like, YA has to have an element of, like, telling it like it is to the kids, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's so, so I feel like they're like, you know what? People are as racist as Christopher in the real world in high school, so we're going to have a, ra- a super racist character, and, like, we're going to challenge him, and he's going to grow and change, but, like... We're not afraid of telling it like it is. I think that that's going to be their, like, Mm -hmm. attitude towards it. Mm -hmm. And my rejoinder would be that they are completely pulling their punches to actually deal with the themes in a serious way. Because I think that, like, let's give Christopher a chance to be super bigoted and let's have, like, the... Um, I don't know, the Aztecs want to execute Jaleel immediately because he's black and have Christopher decide whether he's going to save him or not. Like, let's really grapple with mm. something that is, like, a serious theme and not Rather keep it in, sacrificing in, the, humor. in the context of, like, sacrificing humor yeah. or, or something, right? Like, they keep making jokes about Christopher wanting to rape April. Well, like, if they were really trying to grapple with these themes, they would have to deal with a lot of, like, sexual assault and trauma in these books, which, like, of course, they are not they are not actually able or willing or interested in touching, right? Like, like these issues and, like, um, the role of, like, I don't know, humor about difference in group bonding in, like, the military or on a sports team among men. Like, I don't know, there, there is probably some value to, like, being able to acknowledge your differences in a jokey way and, and work together through it or something. But that doesn't mean that every anything goes everything's on the table right like Mm -hmm. if you're dealing with themes of bigotry there have to be acceptable boundaries and like there's no there's no interest in like delineating the acceptable boundaries except maybe in the last book where it's like the cartoonish nazis are bad and everyone knows that example Mm -hmm. right like it's just it's very it's such a lazy treatment and the boundaries they draw aren't even real boundaries right jaleel says to him like We'll tell you which things are unacceptable. <laughs> doesn't t- doesn't tell him that, but just like someday we'll tell you what's really unacceptable. But once a day you get to use the word Hebrew, and once a day you get to use the word brother, B-R-U-T-H-A. And if you're uh, particularly good that day, I'll give you a bonus brother. And then you can, that's, that's allowed. And now you can, don't worry, now you can be, still be funny because you can still use those two words, which, okay. Did you notice that he also made a Nazi joke? Wait, what? No. David's giving orders, and Christopher clicks his heels together and says, Javol, mein Herr. And I was like, too soon! Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, great, that's a great point. I do think another piece of what's missing is the damage that the jokes yes, do. Absolutely. And I don't think we see much of that. Like, we see a little bit of... April not liking David's um, David's sexism with regard to her ability to fight. I don't know that we've really seen much of like Jaleel being like offended by the racism or being like, yes, I face this all the time and it sucks. Um, or like April feeling like 
Christopher makes these rape jokes and it makes me feel unsafe or uncomfortable. Like, we just don't mm-hmm. see the effects. We just learn that they're wrong. It's right. like that. Everybody shrugs them mean? off, being like, ugh, it's Christopher making jokes. It's just a joke. It's like we're still back in that kind of mindset. Yeah, and the the whole, the part where she describes Jaleel, I mentioned earlier, is just, it's a paragraph of microaggressions. And one of those is that he is not allowed to have feelings about the way that he's treated by this group of people. And mm-hmm. and she, she calls out, she says, Jaleel the enigma, Jaleel the impenetrable. It's not a black-white thing, either. It's not that his skin is a different color than mine, or even that he is, I guess, smarter than me. Jaleel is Teflon-coated, armored, camouflage. You try to look inside him, and your gaze is deflected. Your questions are turned aside. Your curiosity seems to slip and slide off him, leaving no trace. Is he hiding something, or is he really just arrogant? Is he supremely insecure or supremely confident? I don't know. Gee, I wonder why he'd be defensive around these people. I can't imagine why he's not letting you into his rich inner life and the hurt that he feels when you, you know, constantly refer to him only as, like, like it just doesn't, it's such an awful, and like, she's the good guy, she's the good one, and that's how she thinks about him. Like, I just feel so bad for Jaleel, and I, just, these books make me very angry. <laughs> right. I actually, I mean, it is a... I can only read that paragraph as a microaggression on the part of the authors. Like right. again, they again, what they're doing. again, I think they would be very defensive about it and say we're treating Jaleel the way we would treat any character. But like, it's totally um, rife with stereotypes. It's also it's that thing where she's like, it's not a black white thing. It's not that his skin is a different color than mine. That's not what marks the distinction between black people and white it's not like oh my skin being darker changes me it's that everyone treats you differently and therefore your lived experience is different yeah it still doesn't make sense that she would bring it up in that context of like i don't know right and also it's like the weird the weirdest thing to me about that paragraph because it is it's rife with microaggressions i think that's exactly Uh the right way to say it jenny but the weirdest thing to me about it is that she's like it's not about his skin color it's about all this other stuff about his skin He's Teflon coated. He's impenetrable. Oh. He's camouflaged. Like it's all about his skin. Except, don't Whoa. worry. It's not that he's black. It's all this other stuff about his skin color. And it's like, I'm sorry. Ooh. The what now? <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you people? Right. That's amazing. Whoa. So I hear me out on this. Something that I was thinking about in terms of we're going through the second cycle of who these characters are, mm-hmm. right? I think April is doing Everworld on easy mode. She seems to be, like, I, I'm, I I don't think it's just our, like, bias towards her character. I think that she's, like, the good one, the nice one. She's genuinely yeah. funny. She seems to have an, a pretty good life that she likes, and it's normal, right? And, like, I think that to the extent that she's, like, struggling with stuff, it's, like, a little bit the God thing, a little bit the, like, can a woman fight thing. But, like, it's mostly just, like, she wants to be, like, a a normal kid or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to me that they, like the three men in the group are given these like incredibly intense, angsty, like personal challenges that they're like working through. And April is just kind of like, she just gets to like have a nice time and kind of be in, I don't know, like it feels like, 
why not give us angry April, where she is constantly, I mean, like, maybe sort of meta comment, they don't want her to be too Rachel or something, but, like, <laughs> why not give us angry April, April, who's super pissed off all the time about how she is mistreated by all of the men, and she is mistreated, like, why make her so generous and kind and loving and, like, whatever, it's like, I don't know, it just seems like an interesting, okay, I think what I'm trying to say is I think that April isn't a... I want to say that they might not be as willing to give April flaws because of how sexist they know their readers are, (laughs) right? So, like, if April is, like... If April is, like, holding David to account for the comments that he makes about her, the, like, the the average Ted reading this in the 90s is going to be like, oh, April, what a bitch, what a feminazi, right? Like, she's so unlikable. And... I wonder if they're like, I don't know, just like... No, that's such a good point. They're able to, <laughs> they're able to like, do this, like, angsty stuff with the guys that they aren't willing to with the token woman. And it's really interesting that they're willing to be like, well, the black guy, we're going to give him all these problems in this personality, and we're not going to worry about microaggressions. But we have to be protective of April. It's like... Yeah, it's um, just sexism was real in the '90s, but not racism. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's I think I think that's kind of maybe what this is. So this doesn't hold a hundred percent true, but generally uh, in kids animated movies, if you have a female lead, and you can see this in a lot of the Disney princess movies where the Disney princess yes, is the main character. This is exactly the point I was going to make. Is yes. that she is nice and sweet and kind and good from the beginning, and it's the people around her that have to kind of recognize that, solve their own problems, and then give her her due. Um, And when you have a male character, and the the two just off the top of my head are Lightning McQueen and Cusco, they can be flawed and they can be arrogant and they they are the ones that undergo a character journey. It's very rare. Um, We're getting more in, in recent years, which I love, but it was very rare for female main characters to get an emotional journey. Uh-huh. Basically their father figure or their village, uh, they're the ones who had to figure out, oh my gosh, she's been right the whole time. It was my own right. arrogance exactly. that blinded me. Um, and I'm feeling kind of these same vibes with April. And then sometimes you get something like Frozen where like you get a female character with it, but like you have to have a pair of female characters so there's one who's fine the whole time. No, you're so right, though. And that's one of the reasons why I think Frozen was so popular, is little girls actually love angst. Um, And (laughs) Elsa has buckets of it. Um, No, it's true. And, like, I think that's a really good way to to put it, too, is the, like, Disney problem of April has to be good, because otherwise, why would we have a girl? And it's not just that. It's, like, so David and Christopher, and to a lesser extent, Jaleel, like need need to be changed by Everworld and April needs to not be changed by Everworld. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it makes sense that you would have some of each character, but it's so gendered. Yeah. Um I don't know. I mean I don't because Jaleel doesn't seem to have OCD while he's in Everworld, it's unclear if his experience in Everworld is going to change him. David and Christopher, we've already seen them start to like change and grow in different ways. Um, and April, I feel like, can only lose from the experience. And I, I really love that contrast. But, like, why did it have to be along those gender lines? And, I mean, I know why. It's because you, kids media in particular, can't have a female protagonist who starts out flawed. Because then she'll be, like, unlikable. 
Yeah, so I, I do think that's one of the big reasons why... I mean, I feel like in Animorphs, you mostly had characters who were trying not to be changed. Like, in some ways they, like, grew, but mostly they were being challenged by the events in ways that threatened who they normally were, because they were normally, like, mostly okay. And here, um, I like April's thing because she is trying not to let her life be destroyed by this thing that's happening, whereas David and Christopher kind of need their lives to be destroyed so that they can become better people, and that's... Maybe a story that Apple Grant is less good at telling? I don't know. It is interesting, though, like, I cannot take David and Christopher, and to a lesser extent, Jaleel, that seriously, because they're, like, it's almost so cartoonish, mm-hmm. the, like, the way their problems manifest and, like, their angst and stuff is, like, kind of just, like, tiresome as presented. Hmm. But, like, April's really, really low-stakes friendship concerns I find super compelling and like I I, it's interesting whether that's like having likable characters is just it's easier to relate to them or if it's just like Apple Grant or like kind of like better at delivering on that like I don't Mm. know what the right answer is hard to say yeah because they're they're good at like normal kids in weird situations and when those normal kids also need like need to have like dramatic flaws like like really large flaws that like they need the weird situations to change them like that's i don't know that doesn't work as well nope (sighs) should we talk a little bit about uh april's rage oh yeah let's do that yeah i really i i really liked that thing where like april goes into battle and like suddenly feels like everything else like falls away she's like thrown into this like battle fervor which i've never been in battle i don't know how realistic that is it sort of seems plausible to me and she's really upset by it she's like was that who was the girl with the torch is what she asks i mean she was the girl with the torch obviously but like she feels like it was a separate person from her and and that's that's magnified by the thing where real world april and everworld april kind of split and remerge. So when she's real world April, is she ever world April? Like she gets the memories, but she didn't really do those things. And she's talking to the priest in confessional and she's like, hypothetically, if you had a Jekyll and Hyde situation, would Jekyll have to confess for Hyde? And he's like, whoa, that's way too deep for me. I don't know if they are the same person, then yes, but otherwise no. And and that's how she's thinking about it. Like, yeah. I really like that conflict. It's such an existential question of what this is doing to them. Are they the same person? Is their real world personality really experiencing the same growth and trauma as their everworld personalities? Are they going to become the same person if they permanently revert back to real world like these are the kinds of existential questions i'm curious about is getting the memory of the event the same as living through the event exactly right that's so interesting right the internal identity stuff is way more interesting than the like forced conflict between the four protagonists do you guys remember in uh one of the earliest books i can't remember if it was david's first book or his second i don't know but somebody mentioned that when they come back to the real world, that their real world selves were acting a little differently than they would have. Okay, it was Christopher. Mm, it was Christopher's first book, I think. That he gets, like, the update of his real world self, and 
he he like yelled at his mom. He snapped at someone, mm-hmm. and he's like, "I wouldn't do that. It must be the stress of Everworld." And I, <laughs> oh, man, this book could go so many cool ways, and I don't think it's going to. And I'm sad. Right, because like, did he him thinking like I wouldn't have done that? Like on the one hand, maybe he's just like. Maybe that's just, like, after you do a bad thing, you're like, that didn't feel like me. Mm-hmm. And because he doesn't directly have the memory of it, like, he's a, he can create that distance. But I feel like maybe there's also... I don't know if you guys ever have the experience of, like... Um, like, sometimes if I'm, like, writing an email for a group and then someone else edits it and I'm like, oh, but that line doesn't... There's nothing wrong with the sentence, but it doesn't sound quite like I would say it. Like, I could imagine having that kind of experience with um with an, a memory you just got in sort of an info dump you're like but that doesn't quite feel like me i could see it either way yeah either there's a real difference or it's just like you can create that denial because because of this weird setup yeah like is christopher actually going to learn any lessons in the real world oh wow oh that's interesting oh that would be such a good that would be such a good <laughs> conflict to rest yeah. the end of the series on is like if they can become separate people or merge as people and like what choice would they make? What if you could get to the end of Everworld and you're like, we can just kill your Everworld selves and your real world selves can go on. Do you want that? Like, or can you, we can remerge you, but you'll lose all your Everworld memories. Right. And would you be willing to lose all the growth that you went through? I right. feel like most people would not be willing to right. lose that. If they had been made immortal in Everworld, like the Greek gods promised, <laughs> would they have been bouncing back and forth and like growing older in real Earth their whole <laughs> lives, staying young and immortal in Everworld? Whoa. If they died in the real world, would they die? You know, if we die in yeah. Narnia, so, did we die at home? That was my favorite sort of potential theme that came up in this book the thing about how god's weakness is that they're unchanging and that these teens can grow and change like that's like a super great theme to be the Mm -hmm. backbone of everworld i absolutely love it i was i read um circe during the pandemic Uh absolutely love it. it gives great thematic treatment of like the point of view of an immortal dealing with what that means and sort of like coming to know different mortals and seeing them grow and change and stuff. And like Christopher turning down immortality could have been about like, do I want to be this version of me forever or do I want to keep changing? And instead it's kind of this oh, weird, yeah, like, that's... well, I owe it to Ganymede for like man reasons, <laughs> like, <laughs> which is like, fine, I'll take it. But like, you know, and, and to the, to the point of, like, they come into this world and they get to be agents of chaos or whatever. I'm interested in that and, like, gods are static and people are not. And, like, the, the coup hatch thing that comes up at the end where the coup hatch are basically like, yeah, so, like, we like our gods fine, but we, we hate Everworld and we think we can beta. escape. So yeah. we're going to rebel now, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's get awesome. Us out of here. And I, that's great. I, I wish that this kind of, like, populist people of all the pantheons versus the gods of the pantheons versus Ka'anor triangle mm-hmm. like that's very interesting to me and I like would love if the series were more about that man reasons or heathens <laughs> I have to do this for heathens <laughs> secret heathens oh man uh, can I just very quickly, that immortality thing is the reason that I was um, real, real annoyed by Cassandra being there she oh, dies. Let's talk about she this. super dies. Yes. She dies a lot. That's what happens. She dies. She doesn't get immortality. She dies. 
Like, there is a whole play. Euripides wrote a whole play. It's called The Trojan Women. And guess what happens to all the Trojan women? They get raped and then they <laughs> die. That's what happens to them. Especially Cassandra, who has a very bloody end, starts a whole thing. Like, there is an entire trilogy about what happens when Agamemnon brings Cassandra home. And guess what? Spoiler alert, it's not great. What is she? <laughs> she's not on Olympus. What the f***? So for me, I also I also want to complain about this. Slightly different, Gray. Your point is well taken, but I'm like way beyond caring about those kinds of details by this point. But I often find prophecy stories frustrating because the thing that always happens is that you learn about the prophecy and then you try and prevent it and you make it happen. You know, like it's like that's what prophecies are for, right? It's like sure. you struggle, like, and it's you, the prophecies have to pay off because that's the only way it's narrative, narratively satisfying. But you can't obviously let the protagonist have it easy, right? Like. So Apple Grant is, like, kind of aware of this, and they choose to do something different with it. <laughs> it turns out I would take the cliche over this, like, stupid lampshading every single time. Because them being like, okay, wait, her prophecies are never believed, so that means we should believe them. Okay, wait, what did she say again? Ha ha, you readers get a prophecy, and our characters don't, and this is the author's, like, having a joke. Turns out, I hate that. I, I did not enjoy it at all. I liked the chapter up until, like, the last uh, two paragraphs. The dumbest Can I be even pettier than that? Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so the prophecy. Gray read the prophecy. I'm just going to read it again. Olympus, by the Hetwin hordes besieged, Hellas' gods Ka'anor shall feed. Which is, like, a weird line. I was like, okay, they will feed Ka'anor. Okay, sure. Um, lest strangers bring the witch to heed the alien blacksmith's secret need. So I first read this and I was like, they don't know what the word lest means. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then I read it and I'm like, maybe they do. Okay, because lest basically means for fear that, yeah. right? It doesn't mean unless. Right. It means for fear. Like, so I read that. I was like, okay, so... Kaanor will eat all of Hellas's gods unless strangers bring the witch to heed the alien blacksmith's secret need. Which do we know an alien blacksmith? Uh, the Kuhatch. Kuhatch. Oh, the Kuhatch, of course. I was confused because I was like, oh, Hephaestus. Wait, he's not an alien. Okay. <gasps> Maybe he is. <laughs> so. It's, not. it's the Kuhatch. That does make sense. Thank you. I'm pretty sure it's possible that what this prophecy means is that Kaanor knows about Senna and is like, I better attack this mountain for fear that the witch will let the Kuhatch escape. But I think probably what they mean is that Kaanor is going to destroy Olympus unless the witch helps the, um, the Kuhatch to escape. But she doesn't mm-hmm. help them. Um, she kills one. Well, we don't know yet. And I bet like it's another her mom, witch not and, Senna. Oh. Right. Um, oh, listen, prophecies do that. Yeah. So, so I, I'm pretty sure they just don't know what lest means. That's my, that's my statement. I don't think this could be part... So I think that this is just kind of like a fun preview of what's going to happen in the book. And uh-huh. I read the first couplet as the premise and the second couplet as like, basically, they need to stop Senna from killing the Kuhatch at the end. However, if you parse the lines, none of the lines actually are coherently connected by grammar. Because <laughs> the last thing, like, should it, shouldn't you read it as Hellas's gods, Ka'anor shall feed the alien blacksmith's secret need? Like, No, no, no. Um, Hellas's gods shall feed Ka'anor. It's just weird. Ka'anor will, will eat, them. eat them. They shall feed them. I think it yeah. would be very funny if... The reason they didn't believe Cassandra's prophecy is not because they forgot it, 
But they argued over the semantics and none of them can conclusively draw what it means. (laughs) Which is, frankly, how most prophecies work, especially in Greece, where they like, they get real fussy about the exact wording Mm -hmm. and then they're like, it must mean this. And then it turns out, nope. Okay. (laughs) Is Hella supposed to have two L's? Did it have two L's in her book? Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, this is a very confusingly worded prophecy. I know they really wanted it to rhyme, and I think that was their big mistake. (laughs) Also, it doesn't rhyme. Also, they point that out, but, like, very lightly. They're like, did that rhyme? Uh, Who cares? Moving on. Like, Eric, I hate you. (laughs) Anyway, Hela's gods caught and nor shall feed. Like, is he going to eat them, or is he going to give them things to eat? (laughs) No, they, uh, I think, I think he is the object of that sentence. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Hellas's yeah. gods yeah. shall feed Ka'anor is yeah. sort of the untitled you're right, sentence. You're right, but it's stupid. But like, yeah. feed him Wait. with themselves, Wait. giving him an alternate food source so he won't come <laughs> after them. Because Hella oh, has all point. of these supposedly eaten gods in ice cubes down in the basement. Oh, oh uh, no, sorry. No, it's not, it's, not he, it's not Hell's gods, it's Hellas, uh, which is the, oh. the older for Greece. Okay, that like, makes more like sense. Like Hellenic. Listen, this would have been a great discussion to have in the book where they're like, <laughs> sure. Hella already, yeah. No, it's not. It's not hell. It's Hellas. The, the, Greece, Greece is gods. It's, it's eating the, the gods from Olympus. That makes more sense now. I was like, the Norse gods didn't even show up. I'm like, great. Another book where the Norse gods show up. <laughs> yeah, no, no. You're good. Okay, that makes more sense. Do you guys listen to You're Wrong About? Yes. It's amazing. You should listen to it, Meg. But um, the, they did a deep dive into Michelle Remembers, which is the book that started the Satanic Panic, which is like this psychologist gets this poor woman to remember being like a, abused by Satanists oh. as a child and like as part of all these rituals. Hidden, hidden memories, um, heavy air quotes. Exactly, exactly. And you like look at the memories, you're like, there's no way any of this happened. But Satan shows up in her memories and he only speaks in rhyme. <laughs> and, and they read, and, and they're like, wow, poor, or like in poems, basically, they're like, poor Michelle to have set this up for herself. <laughs> and they're like, they read some of the like oh, poems, no. that, and like the book is like, yeah, Satan seemed to be really bad at poetry. And they're like, I wonder if Michelle was offended. <laughs> yeah. It's like, poor Michelle is like in her depths and like trying to make poems for Satan to say. <laughs> that This reminded me of that. So um, I want to talk about predictions because we actually finally got enough interesting stuff that we can do predictions. I also have like a bunch of just like little things that I found kind of delightful. Are there other like big topics we wanted to get into? I have a bunch of of Audie's moments. Um, So one of the cheeses that they are fed in their feast (laughs) is unicorn milk cheese. Oh, I want to see a unicorn. I found completely delightful just the idea of unicorns these like pure virginal beasts having the indignity of like being milked like any other mammal. It's like absolutely hilarious. Unicorn double barrel special for my Taz fans out there. How, okay, in order for an animal to give milk, doesn't it have to bear a child first? Do you know what? It's magical. Maybe it skips that. (laughs) Do we know how unicorns procreate? Pregnant unicorns. I just, I love everything that this implies. This is great. Maybe they like virgins, but or maybe they aren't it's ones. milk, but it's like it's like milk in like the euphemistic way that like 
Irish food is like often it's just like blood. Like you know, they call it <laughs> Oh no. Do unicorns shun members of their own race who are non virgins? <laughs> um Okay, does anyone know what the Harsh Spartan is? I didn't Google. I didn't Google. Wait, the Harsh Spartan? Oh, I, didn't, I thought they were just joking about, David's like, like the, you could get You could get a used. bonus massage from the Harsh Spartan. Don't ask. They said, I think like, they're don't just, ask. They're just, just joking about the Spartans being... Yeah, they had just okay. joked about some yeah. specific person they were just talking about. Yeah, I think about. that because the Spartans were the, the sort of more... Seen as the more, um, more like... So, <laughs> April, April makes a really weird assertion that... Because the gods are so old, they have they don't know anything about music theory, and that's why their like band that's following them around is so bad. And they didn't do anything with this, but I would I would have just loved for April to be like, "Come on, Apollo, don't you know about the chromatic scale?" Yes, I laughed so hard. Like, <laughs> she teaches them to write down their songs. I was annoyed there. So there's this thing at the beginning where. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read some of it because it's on like the first page. There's this thing at the beginning where she's like, once you've made it very clear several times that no, you really actually for sure did not want a glass of wine or mead or ale, and no, you honestly didn't want the services of a young handsome god, an old lecher god, an effeminate god, a macho god, a god disguised as a bull, an eagle, a ram, a horse, for crying out loud, or a goat, but would really, really actually rather just sleep. And I was like, Wow, she went through a lot of different things you could sleep with, and she never got to any women. Women, they didn't offer her a woman. Come on, didn't we learn not to be homophobic last book? Also, they should have offered her a woman. The ten genders. (laughs) (laughs) We learned not to be homophobic against men. We can still be homophobic against uh, women and women loving women. Except it's really more of a like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The thing about like Artemis also checks out Aphrodite and they're like, you know, she's surrounded by nymphs and she checks out Aphrodite. Nothing else about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's right. It's very like winking and odd. Like this joke, just for people who are insiders. And <laughs> There was also the, uh, the thing where like Ganymede, Zeus's one boy toy amid a right. lot of girl toys. And it was like, really? Is he the only one? Okay. Like How you guys are just very that? uncomfortable with... <laughs> Everything related to this. I I loved Pegasus and um, Peleus. Is that the April's Peleus? Pegasus? Named yes. after our, uh, Achilles' father for question mark reasons. <laughs> so so two two great things about the Peg- Pegasi. Uh, they hate Senna. 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 Horses don't like Senna. I this came up at least once before. I love it. I kind of hope it's never explained, but they keep adhering to it. I, I, maybe there's some origin story where Senna was mean to a horse. I don't know. Whether or not it pays off, I just absolutely love this. this I feel like witches and horses are often. Oh, it's well, maybe thing. it's a witch thing. Yeah. That's less yeah, yeah. exciting. But oh. Yeah, is there any famous witch in mythology who had a horse thing? Because maybe that's Senna's mom. I think Senna's mom is definitely... Sorry, this is steering into predictions. We'll talk about Senna's mom in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Dalil says Pegasus shouldn't be able to turn because they have horse tails instead of bird tails, which I also love. But, absolutely the funniest thing that has happened in Everworld is when Pegasus and his sons arrive to carry them around, and they're just like, so, like, now what? how do we, like, fly on a Pegasus? Couldn't you guys get saddles or something? And 
<laughs> and Pegasus is just like, no man saddles Pegasus. Which I absolutely love. Pegasus talking about himself in the third person, <laughs> matter-of-factly saying, no man saddles me. What? And then April goes, I am no man. <laughs> uh, uh, so good. Why are they so dumb? I was just, I was so excited when Pegasus showed up. I was like, this is all that I want. I want, I want to meet Pegasus. I want to hear that no man saddles Pegasus. Um, my favorite line was um, <laughs> when, they're, when they're chatting with Hephaestus, whom I love like as a character in mythology. Uh, they're, they're chatting with him, and he he exclaims, "By Poseidon's moldy beard!" <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? I don't understand it, but I love it. Yes. The kids were also super uncomfortable talking about... Is it... Hef- I just thought it was Hephaestus. How, how do I say it? It doesn't I matter. No. Okay, great. I'm glad that it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, at some point, David is like... David's like, well, Hef, which is a great nickname. Love <laughs> that. I also love that he's like the one useful god. Hef calls himself lame, which is good enough for me. But I'm like, yeah, did he also call himself crippled? Because you did. Yep, and I hated it a lot. Also, the authors made the choice for him to call himself that. I mean, I guess, yeah, it might be weird to have, like, a character use, like, modern terms for something that they, yeah, I don't know. This is actually, this is is kind of riffing on that, not responding directly. But it's interesting that the thing that they choose to do with disability in their, like, trying to do, like, real-world issues is to have Jaleel... Um, have OCD in the real world but not in Everworld and I'm realizing that this was actually like so they didn't do that with a physical disability um, which they could have and like actually dealt with these issues like my fantasy version of me or whatever doesn't doesn't have to be in a wheelchair the way uh I do in the real world or something Mm -hmm. but then I'm realizing that was actually like a big twist in the first season of Lost which came out a few years later so like it, it, it is a I don't oh, know. remind me what happened to that. Locke. Uh, one of the main characters in Lost, John Locke, uh-huh. he's kind of like the sort of like wise old man <laughs> among the crew, and uh-huh. he like is sort of like takes on the mantle of leadership, uh, or he's kind of like maybe the rival leader to like the main doctor mm-hmm, guy mm-hmm. or whoever. Um, and the twist in his flashbacks, his flashback episode, is that he's been in a wheelchair, and oh, now that uh-huh. he's crashed on the island he doesn't need it anymore and just a few years after that john locke would become one of the most popular ship tags on tumblr (laughs) amazing connection (laughs) do we have other do we have other um april does not know what a thermal is i don't know if you guys picked up on that um but at the end, they create a, f- a thermal because they set all of the het one on fire, and April does not identify it. She's not an she animorph. She hasn't read animorphs. Yeah. Her loss. She would know, she would have more context for her, like, battle rage if she had. Yes. The only other little thing that I had is I continue to be utterly delighted by how much Jaleel and Santa loathe each other. Mm. And the little, I, I really liked this as a, just like a, something's going on that April doesn't understand moment. Where Senna's like, oh, hey, Jaleel, could you give me that apple? I know your hands are clean. As kind of like a little offhand thing that no one one but Jaleel would understand as a dig. I really like that. Uh, I have a quick dig about the interior cover. Uh Uh-huh. And it's that there is a statue with its head and arms missing. 
They didn't oh, make yeah. the statues without heads or arms, and they didn't just make them in plain white marble. These statues were like these sculptures were made whole, and they were painted a lot of garish, bright colors. But over time, the paint faded. The arms got broken off. The heads got broken off because those are the delicate bits that stick out from the body trunk or what not have you. And <laughs> it's wrong. Also, most of them had like all the men had very exposed genitalia, all of which got broken off on purpose. And kept in a box in the Vatican in Rome. Somewhere. I did not know about and this. And yeah. there was a restoration effort. Someone trying to match like, which genitalia match went penis. to which statue. <laughs> it's very funny that this interior picture is supposed to show the height of Olympus and it's showing Greek-style ruins instead. Like, right. we have no concept of... <laughs> What they looked like all together, like, except for this one uh, quote-unquote classical style building in the very back that might just be a photo-bashed U.S. Capitol. No, it's an actual building. <laughs> I mean, the U.S. Capitol is also an actual building. I'm talking about an actual <laughs> building. Um, I have a bunch of Audis moments. Me too. I also so have, many. I'm starting a list of not Audis moments. Naughties. Because Naughties? Naughties, yes, <laughs> Good exactly. Job, what are not oh like christopher's like, weird references yeah or like the sitcom references okay he watches nick at night but i'm sorry ben-hur ingmar bergman really i watched ben-hur in the 90s <laughs> ramming speed love that movie <laughs> anyway uh do you want to talk oddies yeah yeah all right well we had the da- david was the dark dylan mcdermott yeah. He was also, somebody was referred to as, like, Noah Wiley 10 years ago, which is yeah. so insulting because Noah Wiley has always looked like he's 30 years old. Like, what are you talking <laughs> right. about? But also, he was 29 when this book came out. So they, I guess they meant that this guy looks like a teenager. They were talking about, like, one of the servants in Olympus. So it must have been, this was a child. I Yeah, must, I guess. I mean, Noah Wiley still looks like a child, so whatever. <laughs> He's going to be in the in the Leverage remake. Yeah, he is. I'm, I'm so excited about the Leverage remake. Jenny, so Jenny, excited. Jenny, I'm so when excited. does it come out? I don't know, but they're filming it, and it looks so good, and I'm so excited. And The only bad thing about Leverage was Nate's character. And he's gone. I'm so excited. John Rogers keeps posting stuff about it, and it's great. Hey, guess what? 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 I haven't watched Leverage yet. Watch it. It's like 100% highly recommended from everyone I've watched it, but I'm saving it for a rainy day. But um, maybe we could do a leverage podcast after this one. <laughs> <laughs> We're only five books I'm from the end. I'm going to put it on my list. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm like more and more sold on the idea of doing a woke friends podcast. So I, I can I come and to... guest on that because I love friends, but also it's real bad. <laughs> I think that's the premise. Well, yes. <laughs> that I love it, but it's terrible, so, but I love it, but, you know. <laughs> so no one told you that your jokes are not okay. <laughs> I'm writing that down. That's yeah, the we, theme you song. have to now remake the whole theme so song. So now you, now you both need to be on this. Great. I don't. I, I haven't actually asked anyone to be on this with me. So you know, you there, there are openings, is what I'm this saying. This is this is my year of podcasting. I will be on any podcast oh, anyone asks me to. Yes. As long as That's I amazing. rarely have to edit. <laughs> I'll pitch. I'll pitch in, exactly. but I can't do all of them. Of course, no. Uh, also, there, we got a couple great movie references. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
Uh, we got Sigourney Weaver and Alien, and a Tim Burton John Carpenter collaboration, mm-hmm. which like okay. Uh, and then those were compared to Pleasantville. Um, my favorite were actually the sports references. We got both Mia Hamm and Steffi Graf. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite was. Uh, April's friend Magda saying, that guy looks like Jesus. Magda, you have no idea what Jesus looks like. Sure I do. Christian Bale. Amazing. Amazing. We also got, like, Hercules. He doesn't look like Kevin Sorbo. And I was like, who? That I had to Google it. Apparently, Kevin Sorbo oh, yeah. was like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was in the Hercules miniseries. Also, he sucks yeah. as a human being. But you know who doesn't yeah, yeah, is yeah. Xena. Yeah. Remake everything but only with Lucy. Uh, exactly. Who, like... <laughs> keeps taking him down online and i love it it's so good i love you lucy lawless did i tell you when we recorded animorphs that when i was little i hadn't watched the show and i called her exna princess warrior i still haven't watched the show you would love it it's so gay i want them to Ooh, remake that's right that it's but like it was like intentionally gay. gay, but they couldn't go fully. One of the first canonical lesbian relationships. Yeah, yeah. I liked slash hated April's comment where uh, Magda's like, "How about these boots?" And April's like, "Would these boots be for you, for me, or for someone named Bambi who has a live webcam in her bedroom?" And yep. there are so many layers of that. First of all, I'm pretty sure she's slut shaming someone named Bambi, who's you know a theoretical person. Um, which she also slut-shamed Aphrodite. So there's yes, a lot of slut-shaming did. going on in this book. But also the idea of like having a live webcam in your bedroom as like somehow indicative of a personality trait, which I assume must be sluttiness, oh. exposing yourself no, to the No, yeah, internet. I would I say it's, it's a style that's like that's what you would wear being a, a webcam girl. Exactly. This is before OnlyFans. <laughs> yes, but also now we all have live webcams in our bedrooms every day. I technically got one life. going right now. Exactly. This is in my exactly. bedroom. It is my office. Boots. Although there is a nap pile of blankets on the floor behind me, but that's only in case of emergencies. <laughs> and partially for the cats. And partially sure. for the cats. Oh, uh, someone, one of April's friends suggested she might have impure thoughts about Ben Affleck. Not anymore. Ooh. And, <laughs> exactly. And Zeus's home is bigger than Aaron Spelling's house. Oh, yeah. That did make me laugh. Amazing. And I had to be like, how big is Aaron Spelling's house? Wasn't that like a thing that Aaron Spelling had like a huge house? I, I don't know. It must have been. Yes. Yes. Should we do some predictions? Yeah. We're getting Egyptian gods. Senna's mom. Who is Senna's mom? Is she a mythological figure that we know of? No. Wait, Meg, do you have a theory, right? I think she's a famous witch from mythology, but I don't know who it would be. <gasps> is it Baba Yaga? <laughs> Did Baba Yaga have a thing about horses? I don't that think would be so. too good. I don't think so. That's just the most famous witch I could think of that wasn't just the generic European witch in the woods. That actually has a that name. That would be delightful. We should do, maybe we should do some witchery research. Because I think, if so, it should be apparent from a cursory gur- Google. C- cursory gurgle. Cursory gurgle. A cursory Cursory. Cursory Google. Who uh, the witch is. Witch, horse, fear, witch. myth. That should get us in as mom. You guys, I just 
found the next book, and guess what cover it is? Guess which one? No! No! It's the Kuhat! It looks like Snuffleupagus. All right. But like a, a honestly, hairless Snuffleupagus. Honestly, to me, this is, what the, droad, this is what the Drode looks like, except the Drode was kind of like hairy. Or like purple and like accordion-y. Okay, so hopefully we'll find out what the alien blacksmith's secret needs are in this book. Well, it's yeah. to go back to their world, probably. I don't know. I'm glad we're getting a Kuhatch we book. Interior oh, covers. Oh, awesome. no. Oh, no. Kuhatch around a cauldron. Maybe they're the witches. There are three of them. You think Senna's mother is a Kuhatch? I mean, it's a forge. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, okay, so I do have a, a character-based prediction. We... Um, April's virginity continues to be an ongoing theme. We learn in this book that Jaleel is also a virgin. I think that in book 11, they will have sex, either in Everworld or in the real world. Okay. I disagree. If they have it in Everworld, does it count in the real world? I don't know. I don't know. Great question. Yeah. Are they physically still virgins in our world? Because that obviously is a real distinction that means a lot. I don't think I don't think that's gonna happen. I I I'm gonna I'm gonna bet against your thing. Uh, that's fine. I I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> there's not a lot at stake here, but this is my prediction. Will we ever it's, get it's, in? It's April's Chekhov's virginity. <laughs> Why make such a point out of it in book after book after book? That's a good point. I want to know if we're ever going to find out any more about why April hates Senna so much. I mean, I can like a little bit extrapolate that she would have been terrible to grow up with. She seems to be terrible in most ways, but yeah. Are David and Senna going to reunite romantically? I think yes. Probably. Um, I am excited that we're going to go see the Egyptian gods because I think that's interesting. Yeah, I think, and we don't have any evidence of there being more pantheons beyond Egypt, right? Like, we, we've had some mentions of other pantheons, but, like, not in a sort of protagonist way. Do we get to see Atlantis? I wanna know. Not this round, but doesn't Atlantis trade so. with Maybe Egypt? Maybe in the final four. Well, so in the final four, we have Kuhatch and we have Egypt, presumably, and then there are three more books to fill. So we, we do have a slot for Atlantis. It seems possible. They can't just, like, Atlantis tease us and... Right. Yeah. Atlantis. Atlantis. Yeah, that's where I was going. (laughs) So, okay, so interesting thing that we learned. We talked about gods versus immortals. Um, Zeus claims to have actually created Everworld. So, in the sense of being immortal beings, yes, the gods are immortals. But they also do seem to have genuinely, as a matter of record, created Everworld. It's not like they moved here or like they've switched universes or something. It's so a good like, point. Whether or not they created the old world does it hasn't come up, but I'm curious if that matters. Mm-hmm. We also learn that the Hetwan, um, Christopher is able to, when they get surprised, right, by being set on fire, they don't know what to do. And Christopher suggests to them that they run away and then they run away. So they seem very <laughs> suggestible and very easily surprised, which I think could be an interesting plot point or nature of how they beat the Hetwan point later on. Hmm. Um, the Hetwan seem to be uncreative in a way that the Kuhatch and humans are, you know, not. The, yeah. The Kuhatch and humans seem to have the same kind of ingenuity. Do you know what I would love? I would just be bat crap crazy. I would love if we stumble back upon our Viking friends and they're all alive again. Because time in oh, Everworld whoa. is a loop. And it was meant to last forever. And that's why the... Like oh that. my gosh, that's why it's called Everworld. Ooh, I want I that, that a lot. 
And like whatever Ka'anor is doing is permanent, but whatever the gods and the people do to each other is usually oh, yeah. not. I love that. So that's awesome. The I think the plot mechanics that come up at the end of this book, super interesting. Not convinced that they had figured them out before this book in any way. Like, But mm-hmm. basically what we have here is we have, okay, so Olympus versus Hetwan is this major conflict. Um you know, Ka'anor tries to divide the Olympians against each other, and um, General Davidius and friends are like, hey, we gotta, you know, beat the Hetwan at their own game. The Kuhatch can give us weaponry, but then we have to negotiate with them. What do the Kuhatch want? They want to escape back to their world. Who can do that for us? It is Senna's mother. What does Senna want? Senna wants to be Everworld's new Merlin or something, right? So, like, we have this interesting now web of different competing needs and factions and stuff doesn't seem super connected to any of the mythology stuff we have seen so far right we know that like i guess maybe loki is still out there and he wants to use senna to escape um i also don't understand how our protagonists fit into this because Mm. they also i think need senna to escape but they aren't really trying to negotiate with her like Hey, so how do we know you're going to give us a door back to our world? I don't know. Okay, a thought, a prediction, is that by stumbling across plot in every single book, um, legends of them have been spreading throughout Everworld. And by the final book, they're going to get (laughs) powers akin to a god because everyone in Everworld tells tells tales of them. I mean, we saw it a little bit in this book where four teenagers get put in charge of all of Olympus's forces. Uh-huh. And and I'm sure there's going to be a moment where everyone's like, oh my gosh, you're the people who escaped Hellas Dungeon. And you're the people who, you know, did this and this and this. And they're like, well, I mean, technically we did, but it wasn't as cool as you make it sound. And they're like, you're our new gods. Welcome to Everworld <laughs> forever. I really like that. Again, <laughs> we'd be so much more interested in that story. Yeah. Can you imagine being stuck with Christopher forever? Oh, he shows no. that he's capable of change, though. But then he'll become immortal and he won't be capable of change anymore. <laughs> uh, so, you guys, I just I just looked at the first line of this book. It's Miyuki. Her name is Miyuki. And now I believe that this book is about the beautiful cat from Avatar who got in trouble once with the Fire Nation. And I refuse to accept any other headcanons. Thank you. Goodbye. I'd read that book. <laughs> Look this at Yuki. One. So cute. Amazing. Anything else we want to say about have this terrible thoughts. book? Yeah. <laughs> this one wasn't terrible. This one wasn't as bad as the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> Good modification. Yeah. Um, I, I think I don't really have anything else. I'm excited to see where they go, sort of. Okay. I, I am actually, I am genuinely excited to see the stuff that they set up at the end of this book pay off. Yeah. I think there's a lot of potential for it to go wrong. I do not care about any of the characters except for April and Jaleel, but there's potential. Damning with faint praise. All right, well, let's find out next time. The start when, of the next book is when, so racist, you oh guys. No. It's so racist. Uh, Jenny, you couldn't, we couldn't end on a high note. All right. It's a new kind of racism. They haven't picked on Asian women yet. All right. Oh, God. Oh, God. No, this is over. Let's (laughs) put this off for as long as possible. Bye, everyone. If you
you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com and at anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. We should probably try to get episodes out a little faster, just because otherwise our backlog is just going to be ridiculous. <laughs> Yum! That's a really good point, Jenny. Why don't I do that? No, no. I I refuse to apply any peer pressure. <laughs> All right, we're playing good cop, bad cop. No, no, you're wrong, and I'm right. Gray can take as long as she wants to edit. And I did.